On July 22, 2011, Anders Bering Breivik mailed out a manifesto that revealed his far-right views and the hatred of Muslims he had developed as he was radicalised online, before setting off a bomb in the centre of Oslo that killed eight people. He then made his way to Utøya, where 16-year-old Gauti Børstad Skjervo saw two of his friends murdered. Breivik would go on to kill 67 more people that day, most of them children that he executed, first wounding them and then finishing them off with shots to the head. You'd think that Norway would have reacted in horror, and for a while it did. Prime Minister Jens Stoltenberg called a broken nation together and asked for more love and more democracy. Seas of roses signified that love and togetherness as a distraught nation mourned. But gradually, as the months went on, what Breivik said went from being extreme to mainstream. Now, as local elections approach, government ministers are openly wondering about the Islamization of Norway by stealth. And rather than being hailed as heroes, survivors became the subjects of harassment, abuse and new threats of violence. Gauti survived that day and remains committed to politics, to dialogue and to ensuring that his friends from all over Norway did not die in vain. And this is the story that he told me. When was the first time you saw the man that you now know to be Anders Bering Breivik? Well, it must have been just a few minutes after he arrived at Utøya. Um, I sat in the cafeteria building with my best friend. Uh, and out of nowhere for me, uh, I saw this policeman um, shooting two uh, friends of mine uh, on the top of the hill on the top of Utøya. So it was, I didn't recognize him or see who it was, only saw a character with the police uniform. And what went through your mind at that moment? Because here's a man who is representing the forces of the state, supposedly there to protect you, and the next thing you shoot two people dead. What did you do in that moment? I think the best way to put it is extreme feeling of chaos. You don't know who's on your side. Is there someone here trying to help me? Is there several people trying to kill someone at the camp? Uh, immediately, the rumors started to go. There were several attackers. They were wearing police uniforms, or someone also said that the police have already arrived to help us. So I must say chaos. Uh, and extremely unsure what is happening. In all that confusion, uh, a lot of people died because they didn't make a plan. They didn't, they just froze in that situation. What did you decide to do in that situation? Well, a very interesting, interesting thing about uh, the brain. I was only 16 years old, but my brain and my body reacted almost automatically. Uh, you decide, okay, should I fight or should I flight? So I d decided to run. I ran down to the to the sea to try to hide um, and at first I thought it cannot be as bad as it looks there must be some kind of hoax or someone trying to scare us but um, the more time went the more bullets being fired the more I understood I have to swim from here and you got into the water of Utøya and you started to swim did you have a plan at that point in time or was it just to get away as far as possible not really. Um, the plan was to get, a far, get as far as away from Utøya as possible. Uh, me and a group of four others uh, said we just have to jump. We had just witnessed several people being killed on just uh, a few meters away from us. 
So there was either being killed where we stood or trial luck in the ocean, in the sea. And when you got into the water there, because the water, if I remember from the reports that day, was pretty cold, you know. It's like it was very cold, yeah. Yeah, Nor Norwegian summers are not that great. Um, did you have to turn back? Because I know some people turned back because the water was too cold or they felt that they were going to drown and they came back towards the shore. How did your escape happen then? Well, since it was quite late during the attack, um, several boats, volunteer boats from people living close by and tourists with boats came towards the island. Um, they were also shot at, so some of them fled, but uh, quite a few uh, approached us and halfways, I would say, between the island and the mainland, we were picked up. Uh, so the only plan was to get on that boat and get as fast as I could away from the island. Um, at that point for Arbeida Partiet, which is the, the Norwegian Labour Party for English speakers, I suppose. Um, what was the purpose of that camp? You know, why did people go there every year? What did you do when you were there before all this happened? So, um, uh, Labour Youth, which is my youth party, the AUF, which is Labour Youth, uh, have uh, a tradition of having a summer camp. We've had it every year since 1950, where we gather people from all around Norway. Norway um, with 15 different counties, uh, people and young people between 13, 14 and uh, a bit uh, over 25 years old, gathered together around a thousand um, on the island to have one week to learn about politics, to learn about uh, history, tradition, to learn about um, the Labour Party and the Labour Youth, but also to meet people from all parts of Norway. Uh, from in my case, I went my first time was when I was 14 years old. I met my first Muslim friends. I met the first people from south of Oslo. I met people from all of Norway and boys and girls hung all day, all night for a week just to have fun and to learn about politics. Um, it's a place now that's famous all over the world. How well would it have been known in Norway before this attack happened? Is this something that's part of the political scene in Norway or was it just something kids did? They just went to camp like any other camp? No, I would say it was quite famous because all the um, leading characters of my party had had their um, early years there. They started uh, at Utøya in the AUF, Gro Harlem Brundtland, which was one of the first female leaders of uh, um, European countries. Uh, Jan Stoltenberg, the current uh, chief of NATO. Uh, all these um, country fathers and uh, mothers of Norway have had their um, young years there. And I would say it was a very important part of my party's history. And now it's become so, and it also become a very important part of the Norwegian history. And um, when I speak to people who have been in the AUF like yourself, I'm always struck by your knowledge of the history of the party and, and of the workers' movement in Norway. Is that very strongly connected to Utøya, or is it just something that happens that you, that you learn growing up, so to speak? No, absolutely. Uh, one of the key issues on Utøya is to learn about the fights uh, the members of the AUF have had before us. Uh, on the day, 22nd of July 2011, our last uh, news article on, on our own webpage was um, an article commemorating uh, four members of the AUF who fought during the Spanish Civil War. So in the early uh, morning of 22nd of July, we had our newspaper or, or our um, uh, own article in our own webpage where we were commemorating uh, 75 years since they lost their lives in the Civil War in Spain. So that's been a big part of our history. Um, 69 people died there that day. Can you tell me a little bit about some of your friends who died? 
Well, yes, uh, I lost several uh, friends, uh, two of my absolutely best friends. My uh, best friend at the time from my hometown, um, Levanger, was my good friend Emil. He was 15 years old and we traveled together, a group of six young boys from the same class. We had just finished uh, junior high school in Norway and we went together. We slept in the same tent and we uh, learned about politics, uh, enjoyed having a fun uh, time at Utøya. Emil was like the other of us, also very interested in politics, but perhaps first of all, very interested in learning new things, learning about history, learning about uh, different cultures, learning about um, the Great Famine, learning about uh, historical issues that have always uh, been a part of our history as a party and movement and a country. Uh, he was a great guy who was uh, popular with all his friends. He had only friends, no enemies. Uh, a guy everyone liked. And I would also like to mention my good friend Gisem. Gisem um, was born in Turkey, but she grew up in Trondheim in Norway. She was my best friend in the AUF and also my first Muslim friend. Because in my community, in uh, a small town in Norway, there was not so many uh, young Muslims when I grew up. So my first meeting with a Muslim uh, person was Gisem. And she uh, quite uh, soon became my best friend in the AUF. Um, and she was only 17 was she, when she was killed as well. And what was the direct aftermath of it? Like, the reason I'm asking you this question is because uh, of what happened in Vedum recently. And I know one of the hotels in quite close to where that mosque that was attacked was used as an overflow, you know, because the logistics come in. People have to have somewhere to eat and to sleep and to lie down and mm. that kind of thing. W do you remember where you went or what you did? Did your parents come to collect you? What happened after that? Well, uh, there was this hotel close to Utøya, which um, was used as a logistical centrum where everyone came. Uh, our parents came during the night. Norway is a quite long country, so it's many hours drive. It's eight hours drive from my home. Um, my parents came and almost all the parents or close friends or family members came to pick up their loved ones. Uh, we gathered there to meet each other and also to see who was alive and who was not because um, uh, we did not know anything. It was completely chaos and there, was, there were lists on the walls where you could see uh, who was confirmed alive. So when you came you wrote down your name and people would come and check the lists and say oh my god he's alive. I'm so glad. And as the hours went, you would get more and more um, afraid because you didn't find your friends' names, you didn't find uh, perhaps your girlfriend's name, your boyfriend's name, your sister's name. Um, so it was a fantastic moment to see your friends on the wall, but suddenly much more scary when you didn't find the ones you were looking for. What did your parents say when they arrived to collect you? I can almost, I almost can't remember, but I believe it was just a big mess of loves and hugs and tears. Yeah, and tears, of, of course. Uh, thank goodness for being alive. It was uh, extreme gratitude for being alive, but also uh, extreme sorrow because they knew the parents of Emil, who was at that time missing, uh, which was uh, either meaning he was uh, severely damaged in hospital or was killed. So it was both worlds, both um, extreme uh, happiness for seeing the ones you loved, but also extreme sorrow because you knew other parents would not see their uh, children again. I remember thinking at the time, because when all this all happened, I just got off a flight from Gatwick in London to Orlando in Stockholm, and there's always a bag inside my door. I talked about it on this podcast a lot in case something like this happens. 
and we realised how quickly, very, very quickly, how big that bomb was. And we knew that this is out of my league, I'm a freelancer, right? So it's out of my league, so they're going to send in the, the big guys and girls to do this. But I still was on standby the whole time, so I monitored everything that happened. And what struck me at the time, Delta, was that the shock for me was not that so many people were killed, it was that nothing ever happens here. This yeah. is not the kind of country <coughs> where violent crime happens. The police, as far as I recall, the police are armed, but I can't, I can barely remember the last time they shot somebody dead. Even the guy who mm. shot up a mosque mm. recently, I tried to shoot up a mosque, came out of it with a few scratches. Um, how shocking was this for you when, in the hours and days that follow it, when you step back, you know, what, what did this do to Norway in general? I would say uh, 22nd of July took away Norway's innocence, um, meaning We've all lived lives in deep peace, what um, Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO again, um, is describing as a deep state of peace because uh, we, my generation and my parents' generation, have not experienced war or any threats actually. Uh, the last time I was um, a victim of extreme violence was during the Second World War. Yeah. So we have not seen anything like it in 70, 80 years. And suddenly there we were in the middle of the news, in the middle of the tension of the whole world because 69 um, um, young people were killed at the Labour Youth Summer Camp and also eight people were killed in the um, offices of the Prime Minister. And I would say uh, it made us understand that we are also um, going to at some point be involved in violence again. We're going to be involved in um, international trends hitting us. This was right-wing extremism which we have seen from other parts of Europe, other parts of the world, uh, rising again. Uh, so uh, we understood that we were once again uh, prone to being attacked by the same forces that had, had invaded us eight years ago. When I came to Norway and Stoltenberg was still Prime Minister here and he talked about the answer was more love and more democracy. But the first time there was an election, a general election after that, Stoltenberg was shown the door and people who would have been closer to the politics of Anders Bering Breivik were put into office. How did that feel for somebody like you who'd survived that massacre to see his politics becoming of what they call Rumsleyan in Scandinavian languages, you know, house pre or sort of uh, house trained, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. How did that feel for you? Well, first of all, um, I'm not sure if I will accept the premise that uh, there. Um, uh, progressive party in Norway are closer to Breivik because I believe all democratic parties are away from him. We don't agree, but it is difficult for me, and it still is, to to see how um, politicians who are spending all their time on discussing conspiracy theories uh, towards Muslims, people who are uh, openly saying that Muslims are a threat to Norway, are now in power. Um, I must say. I don't believe that the uh, leading party in Norway, the Conservatives, uh, in any way wants to be um, on the same side as those spreading these conspiracy theories, uh, theories. But I would say the Progressive Party, which is the Norwegian right-wing party, have done it for so many years and they're uh, still a big party in Norway. They have not taken enough responsibility for how their politicians have spread these conspiracies or have they also uh, participated in, in spreading um, words that I would say is damaging towards especially Muslims but also other minorities uh, and that is scaring me. One of the words that gets used in Norwegian is sneak Islamisering which is Islamization by stealth I think is how we'll translate that 
Uh, when I first started to write about these things maybe 15 years ago, uh, that was a word that you only ever saw in the darker, darker corners of the internet. And now I see it on the front page of Afton Postan and of the Valens Gung newspaper. So the words that were being used and words that were found in Anders Bailing Gravy's manifesto have now become part of the daily discourse. Uh, that is something that you have reacted to mm. in recent weeks as coming into the local elections here in Norway. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, what the discourse is like here? I believe that the political discourse in Norway is better than in many countries. In when you see US, when you see the UK, how the fronts have become so extreme, where, well, especially the right wing fronts have become so much more extreme, and the words are so much tougher. I believe we're still quite, uh, quite okay, but I'm very afraid that in quite a few years, just uh, seven, eight years since 22nd of July, words like, as you say, uh, Islamization by stealth is now a commonly used phrase. I would ask, would you accept someone saying that Norway is being Judaized, uh, being uh, taken control over by Jews? Would you accept that? No, of course you would not, because you know the connotations from the Second World War, you know what, what it will lead to. And now people are saying it uh, regarding Muslims, which is obviously not true. We, uh, the Prime Minister was out today in Norway and said there is no such thing. Mm. There is no such thing as an Islamization by stealth in Norway. And, and I totally agree. And I would say um, we as politicians must be very, very aware of uh, how our words uh, are um, making people more angry, mm. gets uh, uh, attention in these internet right-wing uh, forests where people are using these words to spread their own uh, conspiracy theories where they are now saying okay so well one of Norway's biggest politicians the finance, finance minister of Norway is now saying Islamization is happening well why c can't we say that it's dangerous why can't we say that Muslims are dangerous why can't we say that Muslims are a threat towards us Christians or Norwegians as they would say so um, the discourse is quite civil, but I'm afraid that the right-wing uh, words, words from the right-wingers, are now spreading quite fast and also getting a foothold um, in my generation, uh, sadly. You've been very critical in the past of the media for the way that they frame and report these things. And I've always been fascinated because of the fact that you know the workers' movement, if you like, in Scandinavia has always led to quite an educated readership. You know, you'd be much better, much more media literate than in many countries, and yet still these things happen. What, what can the media do better? What can public service do better? What can private newspapers and tabloid newspapers do better? Do you think? I think that um, media's all over the world, and especially in here now Norway, where I uh, spend my time, should be more aware of the trends happening around us because now we see on these chans, 4chan, 8chan, several internet forums that right-wing extremism is getting a grip in the young generation. It's uh, fueling hate towards women, towards Muslims and when the media is saying well um, this, um, these words from the right-wing extremists saying no ways uh, being uh, Islam, 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 Islamified, Islamified yeah. uh, by stealth is um, making Norway more dangerous. And I believe when I say these kind of words are the same as uh, my words, when I say, I say, I hate fascists. And the fascists say, I hate Muslims. Yeah. The media say that's two, uh, two meanings uh, worth yeah. the same. Yeah, two sides of the same two, coin. Yeah, yeah, like fine people on both sides, which Donald Trump <laughs> said. And I, we cannot accept the premise that 
I want to destroy fascism and people wanting to kill my Muslim friends is the same as those saying I want to kill Muslims for how they look. Yeah. We must say, you know what? Europe is a place for history. Europe is a place where Nazism and fascism has shown its ugly face. And now it's here again. And the media saying, well, is it really Nazism though? Isn't it, isn't it really just uh, critics of immigration policies? And yeah. I said, you know what? There is, of course, there are uh, le legitimate um, critics, uh, criticism of uh, immigration politics. That's completely fair. Yeah. But that's a w it's way far from legitimate, legitimate criticism to uh, the extreme hate which the right wingers are now fueling. And the media are not paying attention to what is happening. There are people who would, you, who would say that you're afraid of meeting these people in the marketplace of ideas. You know, why don't we just hear them out? Why, you know, what harm can it do? You know, if we bring these things out into the daylight, then they will wither. And you're shaking your head here, which is yeah. not going to be heard of the red. Tell, tell me why you don't agree with that. I'm sure these are the same people that in 1932 would have said, well, let's invite this Goebbels guy. Let's hear him out. Let's hear what he has to say. And we'll know what he means and we'll know how to fight him. You know what? Europe is full of these histories. You can just watch YouTube right now, you can see what Goebbels, what uh, Mussolini, what Hitler was saying. They never once said we're going to gas the Jews. They never said before they got into power. Of course they didn't, because they will never win an election. And now the same right-wing extremists are using the same rhetoric. They're saying, well, we're just fighting for our Norwegian culture, for Norwegian heritage. We're just fighting for European heritage and European culture, which means Europe for white people. And that is extremely dangerous. And I see no point in me uh, standing besides a neo-Nazi discussing whether or not Muslims should have the right to stay in Norway. Because that is the debate they want to have. Should it be okay for us to have uh, Muslim men in Norway? Well, of course, I cannot have a debate with a guy who does not uh, recognize that we have the same uh, rights, the same human rights, no matter which God we believe in. Uh, the same night as your parents were coming to collect you from that hotel, uh, I had to read Breivik's manifesto and pretty much read most of it over the preceding 10 years. Um, what do you think of him now? You know, mentioned to me before we turned on the recorder here that you know he means very little to you. You don't, you know, your face sort of glazes over a little bit when you talk. But do you ever think about him anymore? No, I don't uh, spend any time thinking about him. I'm glad he's going to stay in jail for the rest of his life. What I want to discuss is uh, how his uh, opinions are staying alive. He's spreading his um, extreme meanings uh, just by being an important part of the right-wing discourse, by being a part of uh, the internet culture in 4chan and HN. He's still uh, living in these communities, even though he's uh, going to stay in jail for the rest of his life. And I'm more dis interested in discussing uh, how can we uh, fight his horrible views than to discuss him as a person. In the, so the year, year and a half or whatever after the attack, through the trial and that kind of thing, can you remember, because you know, it took a long time to recover from something like that, did you receive counselling, did you take medicine, what did you do to get through that? Well, yes, um, and the Norwegian state was fantastic because it said, uh, we don't care what the cost is, we're going to uh, do whatever we can for all these young people. So they uh, uh, did, an, in some cases at least, an extraordinary effort to help us in school, to help us get through school, to help us um, return to politics, to help us uh, get the help we wanted in uh, in the hospitals and wherever we needed it. And for my, in my case, I went to a psychiatrist for a year or so, which helped me 
uh, understand a bit more how the world is, not to be so afraid of all policemen, not to be so afraid of all white vans. Uh, and it was a great help and it didn't cost me a dime because the Norwegian government said we will take the costs no matter what. And that is a big part of why I still love my party and my country so much because I see how important these security nets are for people. The welfare states that can help people when you're uh, either in a car crash or in a horrible terrorist attack. Um, Norway seems to me to have moved on in many ways from what happened there. It's obviously something that will never be forgotten about. And I very much appreciate the fact that you replied to me pretty much as soon as I mailed you. But is it difficult for you to have people like me come in here and poking a finger in this open wound of Norwegian history? Are you happy to talk about this now? You know what? I'm actually quite glad because in Norway, um, the way things are turning, I'm very concerned that um, the public attention is now more towards, how should I put it, <laughs> uh, quite irrelevant things yeah. as um, how should we finance these roads, which is now a big debate in Norway. <laughs> uh, at the same time as there's only two and a half weeks since a uh, 21-year-old Norwegian boy wanted to shoot up and kill as many Muslims as he, as he could. We've already forgotten about it. And now these alternative medias, the Norwegian answer to Breitbart in the US, are now saying uh, maybe the terrorist attacker in Badum should uh, sue the police, should sue the guy who beat him up, which was a um, 65-year-old um, yeah. Muslim man in the mosque who uh, was able to take away his gun and beat him up. And these medias are now saying perhaps uh, the terrorist should sue the state, should sue this 65-year-old man. And the debate is now, uh, was it okay to use violence against him? And some Norwegian politicians, actually today a minister in the Norwegian government, um, was out there saying the big part in Norway about uh, regarding the Islam Islamization uh, in stealth in Norway is that people are not shaking hands. Muslim people won't shake hands with the crown prince. That is uh, what the big debate should be uh, now. While the big problem is there's so many angry white men out there who want to kill uh, young women, who want to kill Muslims, who want to kill members of my party just because how we look or what we believe in. That should be the debate. But the debate is now on quite relevant things in my opinion. And I'm glad that the international media is actually there to discuss, wow, what's happening in Norway. Trondheim is not the biggest city I've ever been in. It is one of the most beautiful and some of the nicest people I've ever met. I'm sure you run into people who are political polar opposites to you. Uh, can you talk to these people? Is there a dialogue with people on the far right here in Trondheim? Do you know who they are? Do you know what threat they may pose? Well, in the terms of democratic parties, yes. Um, we, ha we have right now uh, eight or nine parties in the uh, Norwegian parliament. And I can talk to anyone, no matter which party, no problem. We have a small community of right-wingers in Norway. Um, the police are doing reports and also we have a known center for extremism research, which are doing reports on this. And the problem is there is no community. There's no big community of these right-wing maniacs. They are um, mainly old men sitting behind their computers, sending death threats, sending uh, hate towards, uh, you know, people like me, um, survivors of the 22nd of July, uh, young women, uh, active in politics, uh, Muslim women especially, uh, and there are like the little guy in Badum, young angry men which no one has control over, which are solo terrorists, 
someone called them lone wolves. They're not because they're big of they are part of a bigger community on the internet. But they are lone men sitting in a basement or sitting uh, in their own ha house, uh, being more and more radicalized by the internet, and perhaps being a violent threat towards uh, my friends. And one of the things that I didn't realize, I knew it happened, but I didn't realize this, was that some of your friends in the AUF have had to testify against people who threatened them mm. because they survived the, the attack on the 22nd of July. Can you just explain a little bit? Because that to me is, I've read a lot of mad things in mm. my life, but you know, you, st you tend to think that like Norway is very sympathetic towards people like you who were there that day, but not everybody is. Could you tell me a little bit about any of those cases? Yes, absolutely, because um, it does not get the attention that it should get that um, survivors of the 22nd of July and active members of the AUF uh, in the years following 22nd of July are getting enormous amounts of hatred and death threats. Uh, the AUF uh, has had three leaders since 2011 and all these three leaders have had uh, um, death threats coming towards them and had to go to court for it. And in all the cases, it has led to a conviction against uh, uh, people sending these threats. And um, leading survivors or leading political active members of, uh, surviving 22nd of July has experienced the same. The threats, uh, hate, extreme amounts of um, harassment online, also uh, out on the streets. And the former leader of the AUF, Mani Husseini, which was the first um, um, leader after um, the first leader of the AUF that did not uh, experience 22nd of July. He were at a point so threatened by the right-wing extremists in Norway that he could not participate in the 2017 election in Norway. He was told not to participate in the election. He was a candidate for parliament, but he could not, could not attend uh, the ordinary uh, election electoral process because he was so uh, threatened on his life. And that should be uh, the top stories in the news. That should be the big discussions. How on earth can the leader of the AUF, which was uh, attacked only six, six, seven years ago at the time, be uh, so threatened by right-wing extremists that he cannot attend the electoral process? That is extremely dangerous. I mean, that is at the very root of the democratic process, is to do what you're doing. You're wearing a t-shirt here now because you're campaigning for the local elections and the AUF leader not being able to take part in the general election. I mean, I remember, I actually covered that election and I don't recall that mm. story ever mm. being written. Mm. Um, where does this end up? Where do you see this going? Because I have to say, I have a quite a negative outlook because I don't think all the mistakes are made yet. I don't think we've reached the bottom by any stretch, either in Scandinavia or in the UK or in America. Where do you see it? Because you're on the ground every day talking to people about politics here. I must say, um, also, very concerned. Um, I lived half a year in the US, in Texas, in the US, and I saw there um, how Republicans and Democrats don't speak together, how um, the fronts between the wealthy and the poor, uh, the uh, white and the Afro American society is getting more and more difficult, how um, the fights in internally in the countries in the US and also in the UK, in the Europe and also in Norway is getting much tougher. And I believe um, we must be afraid that the trends from the US also will come to Norway if we don't do anything. The first thing we can do if we want to fight back is that political leaders should not be the ones fueling the hate. Right now in Norway they are. 
right now several ministers in the Norwegian government has uh, participating in fueling the fire of hate towards socialists towards minorities and if you want um, Norway to avoid American um, the American way of political discourse I believe we must start facing these politicians fueling this hate uh, and at the time we're not we're not discussing it at all and the debates is uh, about the f uh, freedom of speech which is um, a very important debate but the debate has been so um, radicalized in the sense that uh, all opinions should be worth the same in some people's eyes that minorities speci especially young Muslim women in Norway cannot participate in the public discourse without being threatened on their lives and that is a very dangerous path to go down. You know, it's, it's also the fact that like there's such a total misconception of what freedom of speech actually is, and mm. it's one of the things that makes me most angry is when people go, "Oh, freedom of speech." Mm. That doesn't mean that you can say whatever you like, and it also doesn't mean that you, you're free from criticism. You know, you if you say something, I liken it to academia. If you produce a paper in university, you've got to be able to back that up and mm. that kind of thing. And the same thing in the political discourse, because once the genie is out of the bottle, once mm. something is said, mm. it doesn't matter. You know, if you say something on the front page of the Aston Post newspaper. And then you go, oh, well, that actually wasn't true. What well, was on the front page stays on that day's front page, mm. but your retraction comes on page eight and nobody ever fucking sees it, mm, you know? Mm, mm. Um, do you think, because again, you, you're steeped in the history of the Arbeida Party here in Norway. Um, in some ways, the, the left in Europe has appeased uh, the, sort of the more sort of capitalist right, if you like. In Sweden, you have schools that can be run at a profit. We've seen um, the, the, the city bus services, maybe not here, but certainly in most parts of Sweden and many parts of Norway, sold out to private developers. We've seen healthcare being gradually privatised. We want to talk about sneaky Islamization. We talk about uh, like privatisation by stealth there as well. Do you think that that's a mistake on the part of the left? Because when Norway discovered how rich it was through oil, you mentioned there that in your own recovery following the attack that everything was paid for, you never had to worry about it. And essentially nobody in Norway should ever have to worry about anything again. Is it a mistake to move too much towards the centre, I suppose, is my question. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, Absolutely. I'm very afraid that um, we're moving towards the centre in politics. All the parties are. And when the extreme right are getting even more extreme on the right side and the Conservatives are following them again because they want to uh, fetch the, all the voters from them again. Yeah. Uh, my party and other parties are also following towards Centrum. Yeah. And I'm aware of it because, as you say, that means, in, first of all, which is my um, most important part of society, is the school. And when the schools are getting more privatized, in Norway, there's free college, there's free high schools, there's free primary schools. But at one point, some politicians, and some politicians already have, wants to um, debate whether or not we should let uh, private uh, capital interests take over schools because that's uh, cheaper they say yeah. more effective well what we then see is that we the most important part of the Norwegian welfare state is that no matter what your parents earn no matter where your parents work you meet in the same school mm. you meet uh, the Muslim uh, sisters and brothers from all around the country you meet Jewish people, you meet Christian, you meet atheists, you meet whoever uh, lives in your society. If we start getting these private schools, which I'm most afraid of, we will separate uh, Christians into one, two, one school, perhaps Muslims into one school, rich kids into one school, and all of us that uh, is not uh, in a special group uh, will stand alone in the uh, common, uh, common, common schools. And that is way dangerous because it will take away the most important part of the Norwegian welfare state, which is the community. Mm. 
I was reading over the weekend where there's two companies in Sweden who are listed on the stock exchange and they run private schools there and they've taken a half a million euros in profit. Mm. Oh, sorry, not a half a million, 500 million euros. So it's a half a billion euros in profit. Now that is money that, uh, when people talk about the welfare state, I think in America and Britain and in Ireland, people see that as being something, oh, you know, it's like social welfare. It's, it's transfers of wealth, it's payments to people. Mm. But when Norway and Sweden talk about the welfare state, they talk about, they, they mean healthcare and mm. education and mm. all the things that you're talking about. Uh, but there goes, uh, you know, half a billion euros out of that. Um, the people who are with you and who survived the 22nd of July attack, do you ever see them? Do you ever speak about it? Do you ever talk to them about it? Yes. Um, almost all of my good friends in the AUF community here in Trondheim uh, either survived 22nd of July or was close to people who did. So we discuss it and we try to um, discuss and debate how can we teach what we've learned to the coming generations. Because now my generation, or my AUF generation, which is two years in AUF, is soon going to be out. Uh, I'm probably one of the few people left in a couple of years that experienced 22nd of July in the AUF. Uh, right now, um, I think I'm the only one who survived uh, 22nd of July in Trøndelag, which is the, the county we're in now, where 80 people came from uh, that day. So uh, people are moving on, uh, either to the Labour Party or to different parts of the society. And the AUF must learn how to um, remember all the things we did and also how to avoid uh, and fight to avoid that 22nd of July can happen again. How do you feel politically and socially or otherwise that the party has reacted in the wake of that? Seven years ago this happened to you. Have they? Have they done right by you? Have they tried to turn it into a positive thing or have they sort of faltered a little bit? Could they have done things better, do you think? I think my party, I mean the party, the Labour Party, has done way much uh, and tried the best they could. But the Norwegian political uh, discourse has been very difficult because almost immediately after the attacks on Utøya and in the governmental headquarters, um, there was this um, notion that this was an attack on Norway, not on the Labour Party, not on the AUF. It was an attack on Norway, which is, of course, it's true because it was an attack on democracy. But first of all, it was an attack on the AUF and Labour Party, on our values. And what then happened is you cannot no longer you can no, you can no longer speak about 22nd of July in political discourse because they will say, oh, now you're using the card. Now you're using the 22nd of July card. Yeah. Or actually the same. Um, the same uh, fall in October, I believe, 2011, uh, one of the uh, later ministers from the Progress Party said that the uh, Labour Party were using the 22nd of July card, yeah. trying to get attention for what we've experienced. And we say, no, that's not a card. That is an extremely difficult part of our history, but it's an imp extremely important part of history that needs to be remembered. We need to know what happened and how it happened and how it could happen in our society to fight against it happening again. But other political opponents on the far right most often are saying, no, you can't discuss 22nd July in that way. You cannot use it in politics because... They, they don't want to brought No, he, he was a maniac. The attacker was a maniac. It didn't have anything to do with bad politics. Yeah. And that's my biggest concern, that uh, it's going to be discussed like it was a natural catastrophe, it, as, as it was almost like an accident. Yeah. But it wasn't. It was uh, a political assassination attack on the labor youth in Norway. Um, 
most of the people killed at Utea were under 18 years old. Uh, that was uh, a choice that the right-wing extremist terrorist uh, took to kill as many youth people as he could, young people as he could. And we must discuss how it could happen and how uh, his uh, views on the society came to become in that extreme manner that he was um, so angry that he went to go kill young people uh, in Norway. I remember thinking at the time that it was a good thing that they didn't kill him when they arrested him because it could have been very, very easy for the cops to put two in the back of his head and that would be it. Have we learned anything more about him? I know uh, <coughs> staff has written uh, a brilliant book called One of Us, mm. which really puts it in that context that you're saying that this, is, this was an attack on the Labour Party. He was one of us and that's very hard for a mm. lot of Norwegian people to, right. to hear. Do we understand him any better now than we did when this happened? Or that's do you a, even care? That's a tough question. No, no, I really care because one of the big problems following the um, aftermath of 22nd of July was that the um, discussion was about his mental health. There was, for those who did not follow the uh, process, there was uh, two big um, uh, rounds of discussing uh, whether or not he could be sent to prison. Was he... Uh, I don't know how, what you call it, mental was, was it, was stable? Yeah, was he criminally liable for his yeah, actions? Yeah, liable, because if he yeah, was guilty but insane, then he's not yeah. actually criminally liable. Yeah. yeah, and there was a big part of Norway that said, no, this guy, he can't be... He's, he can't be... Uh, can't be sane. He can't be sane, yeah. because this is so crazy, it's so extreme. Yeah. And people were calling him a crazy maniac, extreme lunatic. Well, and through the following year, people were saying, Perhaps he's not as crazy as you think. Perhaps he's actually one of us. Perhaps he's actually just a quite normal 32-year-old Norwegian man which has spent lots of time on the internet, which has spent lots of time uh, reading about and discussing extreme conspiracy theories uh, regarding a supposed um, Muslim takeover of Norway and that polit politicians were behind it. And he came to believe it in such uh, extent that he went to Utøya to kill my friends, and we have not discussed how that happened enough. We've only uh, discussed uh, how did it happen, uh, how did he arrive to Utøya, how did he get the yeah, how yeah, how the was bomb? the police yeah. response, yeah. everything. But we did not discuss. Okay, in the in the years since he was a member of the Progress Party in Norway, which is now in government, he left the Progress Party and he was radicalized. He was more and more radicalized into starting to plan how to kill. Uh, Norwegian political activists. And how did that happen? Where did all that hate come from? Obviously, internet is a part of the answer, but can we also find the answer among us? Is there someone spreading these uh, conspiracies, uh, conspiracy, conspiracy theories? I believe yes, and we have not discussed that enough. I was sitting in a, an outside broadcast truck outside the court in Oslo uh, the day he got his verdict, and we were listening to a live feed. And I remember when the judge gave the first indication that she considered him to be sane because then we knew mm. that he was going to prison and he was mm. going to get 21 years and then after that at the discretion of the state and that news flash was sent around the world but that was actually a victory for Breivik as well because he didn't want to be considered mm. insane he wanted mm. to be considered somebody sane doing the right thing for Norway mm. do you still do you ever come across people apart from those who threaten you who, who see him in that way as, as being a patriot as being somebody who was only doing his best for his country in the same way that you're trying to do Yes, they exist. Um, it is very naive to believe that 
he does not have um, people being on the same note as he is regarding to Labour Party because he believed that Labour Party were responsible to this um, extreme invasion in Norway using Muslims and people are believing the same today and people are also uh, cheering on him on his release um, and actually a quite interesting uh, thing that the Norwegian broadcaster the NRK did the com comedy part of the broadcaster they uh, took 40 of his uh, or they took um, 40 different sections of his manifesto translated it into a different uh, Norwegian dialect, dialect yeah. yes and sent it into several different uh, um, um, news agencies not agencies but alternative medias yeah and they published 40 out of 40 uh, of his articles, supposed articles. Mm. And that says something about what, once upon a time, eight years ago, was very extreme. Today, is considered to be quite normal. Mm. Because those uh, 40 articles were not extreme in those arenas, in those forests. They were actually quite normal. Yeah. And um, some people were much more extreme than Breivik's manifesto. And that says something about the Norwegian society today, today because we're normalizing the expressions, we're normalizing the way of thinking, and we're normaliz normalizing the hate. You're soon finished in the youth wing of the Labour Party here in Norway. What's the next generation look like? And what's their experience? They would have been young children of seven, mm. eight years old when this happened, when what happened to you happened on the 22nd of July. Mm. How do they see it and how will they sort of carry the torch forward when you move on? We'll just put your microphone back on there, so I'm sorry. So um, that is one of the things we're discussing the most because how can we teach what we've learned to the, most, the ones coming after us? And I must say it's a very difficult task because they were not there. They were mostly too young to understand what was happening. And today they are afraid to, to ask the difficult questions because we're older than them. It's obviously tough for us. So the new people in the AF are uh, of course, afraid to ask and to be um, nosy in the question, yeah. so um, it's difficult. But we try our best. We have uh, conferences, we have meetings where we discuss right-wing extremism. I have held more than forty different uh, or forty um, what you call it um, speeches, speeches, or, yeah, yeah uh, regarding right-wing extremism in Norway just the last year. So. For me, I believe one of the most important things we can do is to teach young people dangers of right-wing extremism and also relate it to what happened to us. And to see that uh, there's been uh, several um, racist uh, or racial motivated uh, murders in Norway before the 22nd of July, but they, uh, the murders of, for instance, Benjamin Hermansen, which was a famous Norwegian young boy killed in 2001, and the attacks on Utøya in 2011 are related. The same thoughts are behind it. The same hate towards people of brown skin or Muslims are still here with us today. And it's living here in Tulhem. It's living on uh, the schools. It's living behind uh, the keyboards and internets. So we must understand that the hate is not dead. The hate is not only in jail. It is also here uh, together with us now. Have you been back to Utøya since this happened? Yes, yes, several times. And now we have, um, in 2015, the first summer camp, we're back at Utøya, an extraordinary uh, happening. Just four years after the attack, AF had its first camp uh, back at Utøya. At the time, I was uh, quite um, negative. I was opposing it because I said, how can young people uh, swim and have a fun time 
at the island where my friends were killed only four years ago. But it was a fantastic um, demonstration of how to move on, how to learn from history, to commemorate the ones we lost and also look forward. And now we have uh, not only annual summer camps back at UTA, we also have conferences, we have uh, meetings, we have debates on UTA. It's now a center for democracy, uh, where young people come to learn about democracy, the attack on uh, the AUF, and also to learn how we can uh, fight and it's gonna happen again. How does it feel for you to go back there and to walk past the point where you saw those two people you knew being shot and to walk on the lover's path where so many people died? How does that feel? Of course, it's very strange. Um, I can't say anything else, but it's also in some way um, very beautiful because Utøya is a very beautiful place. And it's very beautiful to be back, to see in the summer when there's uh, perhaps 1,000 young people being back there, having the time of their life, meeting their future boyfriend or girlfriend, learning about um, Ebola in the Western Africa, learning about the Palestine-Israel cause, learning about the election in the US, uh, having this extreme solidarity focus and perspective uh, at the same place where my friends were killed for the same. That is very beautiful to see how the spirit of my friends who died is still living on today that makes my heart <laughs> well it makes me warm in my heart and it makes me um, so inspired to continue doing politics for many years to come have you been back to the place where you jumped in the water where you escaped from the island yes it has a small island so you almost you cannot avoid the places you where things happen yeah, things, yeah 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 uh, and like? actually i must uh, say uh, it's difficult but Last year, uh, when I went on, my, on the summer camp, I actually had my first swim at the same place with my friends. A very strange feeling, but you feel, you feel like a boss when you're done. You feel like, oh my God, if I can do this, I can do whatever. I can do anything because it was extremely difficult just to go out in the water where I um, swam from my life. Swam? Swam? Oh, yeah, where you swam. <laughs> from, my, from my life only seven years ago. But now, I'm able to be there to swim with my friends, to have a good fun time, uh, to learn about politics, and it's it's inspiring, I believe. Any time I've ever read what you've had to say or heard you speak, I've always been amazed by how calm you are when you do these things, and you're very sort of focused on that. But what happens when you turn out the light at night and you put your head on the pillow? What are the pictures you see? Do the pictures from that day ever come back, or is that a closed chapter now? No, they're not a closed part of my history. Um, the 22nd July will always be a part of me. And also the memories, the pictures, uh, the sounds, they're always going to be there. But what I've learned is to cope with it, to not make them stop my day, to not make them uh, And do, do you ever feel like stopping? Do you ever feel like fucking no. myself? Uh, well, yes, of course I do, but not uh, only because of that day or the trauma from that day, because when I see this giant orange in the White House doing his thing, on Twitter, when I see the racial slurs towards footballers in the football matches all over Europe, when I see how um, young Muslim women are harassed online today for just saying their opinion, I sometimes think, oh my God, I just want to move to Galapagos and go swim the rest of my life and have a fun time. But you know what? I made a promise to my friends that day, the 22nd of July, when I came to the hotel, when I knew they would not come back, I made a promise that I will do whatever I can to 
continue their fight because they also fought for the same freedom the freedom of speech for Muslim women they fought for the freedom to, of assembly for the members, members of AUF they also fought for religious freedom and for the freedom just to not be afraid of being killed when you walk in the streets to not be afraid of raci racists and I want to continue that fight as long as I'm able